Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity. And in our podcasts, we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages. Thank you for joining us in this EHS podcast episode. I'm your host, Angela Platt, a PhD student at Royal Holloway, University of London, looking at love in religious families in the 18th and 19th centuries. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Eilish Gregory, who is currently Assistant Professor in Research and Scholarship at the New College of the Humanities and Associate Lecturer in History at Anglia Ruskin University. She was recently postdoctoral research associate of the Royal Historical Society and sessional lecturer in history at the University of Reading. She completed her PhD in history at University College London in 2017, and since completing this, she has been awarded library fellowships at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C., Durham University, Marsh's Library in Dublin, and has received several grants to continue researching into aspects of early modern British and Irish Catholicism. Her monograph, Catholics During the English Revolution, 1642-1660, Politics, Sequestration, and Loyalty, was published by Boydell and Brewer Press in March 2021. And she continues to examine the greater impact of Catholic estate forfeiture across 17th and 18th centuries in Britain, Ireland, and the American colonies. She has published in the 17th Century Journal and has forthcoming publications in Brill and Palgrave Macmillan. Today, we're going to be discussing her mentioned monograph, Catholics During the English Revolution. so delighted to be here today with Dr. Eilish Gregory talking about her most recent monograph, Catholics During the English Revolution, 1642 to 1660, Politics, Sequestration, and Loyalty. Now, just to get started, Eilish, can I ask you to describe the historical context in the 16th and 17th centuries? Uh, Well, thank you very much. Um, So what was happening in the 16th and 17th centuries in England, particularly, is that it had experienced a lot of um, reformation in religion. So you'd seen this constant toing and froing in the middle of the 16th century, where England would be under a under Protestantism, Catholicism, then reverting back to Protestantism, with different factions rising for, among Catholic groups as well as Protestant groups. You start to see more um, those who want a more purer type of worship and ones who want a more traditional worship which involves a lot of materiality in the churches as well and Catholics were also part of um, different debates regarding the faith in the in the 16th and 17th century and so this these debates and these um, clashes between Protestants and Catholics um, were building up constantly through the decades pretty much from the late 16th century right into the 17th century and it sort of escalates and spills over in 1642 when the civil wars break out across the three kingdoms that's England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. And so Catholics were caught up in the mix with this, but along with all different Protestant groups as well. And so it was a very volatile time, but one that's really, really fascinating from a religious, political, and social perspective. 
And my second question, so in your monograph, you talk a lot about sequestration. And just for our listeners, can you define sequestration and more broadly, how did it affect Catholics in the lead up to the English Civil Wars? Yes. Um, well, sequestration had been around for a very, very long time in England before um, the, the time, before the book as such, it, in terms of the time frame. So sequestration had been used occasionally in the Middle Ages to confiscate lands and personal property for those deep um, as form of punishment. So you see this happening during um, the murder of Thomas Beckett, for example, and you see this at other instances during the period. And so sequestration basically means having your property forfeited and confiscated from you and either it remains permanently confiscated or you have to do things to get it back whether it's to pay a fine or to do some other obligation to do that and so what happened in the late 16th century was that sequestration started to be used to punish catholics for non-conformity so by them not attending church on a sunday in their local parish church and conforming to the church of england as such and so what they started to do was to try and obviously get Catholics to conform, to root, to root out popery in, i.e., uh, political enemies who were associated with, with um, the bad forms of Catholicism, as in like with the Pope and excommunication. And so what they did was that initially they would they'd find Catholics. So you'd be fined for every week you didn't attend church, which would rise up to quite a lot to twenty pounds a month, once you reached more than three weeks of doing that. But what they started to do just towards the end of Elizabeth's reign was that they started to confiscate the um, the land as well of Catholics. And so it's not just land, it's also fine, you know, financial penalty as well as um, property penalty as well. And it, start, and it continuously adapts in the early 17th century. So after the gunpowder plot in 1605, uh, when James I passes the Oath of Allegiance in 1606, there's also an act to further confiscate lands and property and goods from Catholics for nonconformity, and if they refuse to swear an oath of allegiance to him, and also to swear against the the Pope's um, right as such to say that you know if a monarch is deemed heretical, that they could actually write Catholics could rise up and overthrow them. And so, so it started to be used more as a political tool. And there are some Catholics in this period who do swear the oath of allegiance, and there's some who don't. And it's down to conscience. And so you see a lot of intellectual debates happening over this. And so sequestration was an ever uh, was an ever a presence during this period, but it was used quite intermittently. So it was normally times when there was a bit of a political threat. So obviously post gunpowder plot, it was used quite a lot. It doesn't get used as much during the Spanish match negotiations in the early 1620s to obviously try and, and gain favour with, with, with the Spanish Habsburg, so they weren't punishing Catholics as much with it. But under Charles I in the 1630s, we start to see Charles using it a lot as a way of raising money to help fund his personal rule. So Catholics, whether you're rich or poor, were punished with sequestration and had to pay a what they called a compounding fine to get their their property back and so the compounding fine was was the value of the property so normally say you know if your goods were valued at um uh, over a hundred pounds for example you'd had to pay normally around two thirds of that value value of that property to get it back and so you see start to see it becoming quite um produced on a mass scale so you start to see printed compounding fines in the archives of catholics and it just gives you a sense of how 
frequently um, local authorities were collecting these revenues and Catholics actually being part of the system of being punished with sequestration, paying the compounding fine, getting their property back. And so that's just, and so that's the system that's in place before 1642 when the when the wars break out. And then it completely changes, as you'll probably hear shortly about, and how it completely revolutionised during the 1640s and 1650s. But that's the context of it before the outbreak of war. So on that note, um, having considered some of the background and context for our listeners, can you tell them what is the central argument of your monograph? Yes, yeah, so with, so the central argument of my book really is it was there was a, a few key themes. So one of the themes of the book is to look at how sequestration and compounding developed, adapted and changed during the 1640s and 1650s by looking at it from the point of view of Catholics, because they had obviously been um, were had to go through the process um, for decades compared to, um, say, Protestant delinquents, which were those who supported the king during the civil wars or were either, you know, archbishops, you know, archbishops, bishops or clerics who could be ejected from their clergy. Because um, there's been historians like Fiona McCall who've done work, brilliant work on this sort of thing already. And so this is, so the book is looking at it from the Catholic perspective to first of all see what were the similarities and differences in sequestration compounding for Catholics who had been used to the system for decades now having to face in, the, in a time of war and revolution and obviously later republicanism, but also to see how this affected their the way they petitioned to get their properties back. You know, did they have to do different ways of getting their property back or was it still the same system? And how they how it affected their relationships with um, other Protestants and Catholics in communities, like were they experiencing similar things and whether you know there was a blip in how in that in how it affected their relationships and also um, just looking at it from the six, the Republican era in the 1650s as such, with how Catholics either just tried to deal with the changes of sequestration, because again, it changed in the 1650s, or whether they tried to use the moment in this new age as such to, you know, try and forge a new relationship with, with Parliament, with Cromwell as Lord Protector, to make a better life for Catholics under the new regime that they hadn't experienced under the Stuarts at that point. And my next question, taking another step back, I suppose, and you've already preemptively answered this a little bit, what have other scholars noted regarding Catholics in the 1640s and 1650s, or or more broadly speaking, what historiography are you drawing from? Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot, I mean, the Civil Wars have always been quite a popular topic for early modern British studies, um, but the 1640s and 1650s um, when looking at it from the religious perspective, have only just in the last couple of decades started to get real attention to it. And so um, one of the books I was referring to a minute ago, um, Fiona McCall's Bale's Priest, looked at how sequestration and the ejection of the clergy, for example, were affected during the Civil War and interregnum periods and how and their sequestration and process as such, which is very different to the Catholic perspective. Um, uh, with on the Catholic side of things, um, there hasn't been as much. It's been more looking at um, the intellectual side of it, and when Catholics have gone into exile, so when they've gone to the convents and to the monasteries. So, one of the key works I've been done re- in recent years on Catholics trying to, you know, manoeuvre through this period was um, Stefania Tutino's book on Thomas Rice 
um, and the English Civil War. And Thomas White was um, a lead, was like the head of this Catholic minority faction called the Black Lois. And they were quite extreme for most Catholics in that um, they wanted not only to swear, you know, give um, allegiance to Cromwell and to the Republican regime in the, in the early 1650s in exchange for toleration for Catholics. But they also threw in the caveat that um, if Cromwell didn't behave either, they had every right to overthrow him as well, like the Stuarts had been overthrown. So, so they were quite controversial, even among Catholics. Um, but, I mean, there's been a lot more re- good attention on um, this period in general. So there's been a recent book that came out um, earlier this year called Church and Interregnum Britain, for example. And, that, and so it's given a lot of different Protestant perspectives of what's going on on the ground in the parishes in 1640 and 1650s. So there's been lots of really exciting works done on, on that on that side of the religious spectrum, but just not, there hasn't been as much in the Catholic side. So it was nice to feel, to do this book and to see, you know, are there comparisons with how Catholics were treated and experienced the early modern period when you sort of um, have the early the earlier part of the Elizabethan Jacobean periods as well as what happens afterwards with the restoration of Charles II. So there's always been like this gap and I would like to hope that the book this book is sort of bridging the gap and will hopefully cause a lot more studies on this because I think there's so much potential, so much sources out there that um, that Catholic historians in particular can look at to really understand the 1640s and 1650s in this period. So continuing on what you've just said and thinking about this gap that you're filling, what was the attitude towards Catholics in the 1640s and 1650s that you've deduced in your research? Yeah, um, I mean, what's really interesting, I mean, um, it's always rhetoric versus practice, isn't it? And I think it's been the case throughout the whole of early modern period that there's always very hardline anti-Catholic rhetoric in certain parliamentary acts and legislation and orders are passed in this period and especially at key moments so at the beginning of the civil war there's a lot of legislation even outside of um, sexual compounding that's very anti-catholic like it's always there's those references to popery popish reticency and that sort of thing and the fear of of popery and as i said you know popery was sort of like this word to use to attack those who are believed to be acting against the interests of the nation as such but in a in a cat in a papal way so even though and this is what gets quite complicated with the terms and this is like i do actually explain in the book is that the word popery and catholicism catholic and requisite could be bandied around a lot but it meant different things to different people because even a sequestration order book where actually they have like a cot they have like a description to try and define what what one is what so what's a what's a recusant, what's a papist recusant, and that sort of thing. So even they couldn't quite decide themselves. And so, obviously, so with that in mind, the rhetoric was quite hard-lined, but on the ground, it was very, very different. So you'd have um, Catholics who had had long, good-standing relationships with Protestants um, for decades, even before the Civil War. And from the cases I looked at in the book, this pretty much doesn't change at all. And this is something which I felt had never really been looked at properly beforehand, because obviously we see in the early 17th century and late 17th century that Catholic and Protestant relationships um, in the local communities was generally quite good. And obviously, you know, you're not going to get on all your neighbours, but generally, you know, if you know that person's good, but they just have to be following the different religion to you, as long as they don't do anything bad, you're, you're going to leave them alone and you're still going to socialise with them. And that's pretty much the same in the 1640s and 1650s. Um, I mean, there's one example which I talk about in the book of um, 
Penelope Gage, who was from Hengrave in Suffolk, and her future husband actually came to warn her of a midnight raid to search for arms just before the beginning of the Civil War because the orders had come from London to seize these arms in the aftermath of the Irish Rebellion and 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 all the other events after that. And so, you know, they're... So they get so she gets the warning about fifteen minutes before they arrive, and then these the local officials arrive to take the weapons away, and you know they're very very and what's really interesting in the correspondence because it's Penelope Gage telling her mother about what happened is that um, she says that they were really apologetic that they they're following the orders from London so they're ob- obligated to do it but they were very sorry that they'd make sure when they take the arms away that they will look after them that they won't damage them, and you know they even write an apology letter to. Um, Penelope Gage's mother because um, it's you know because it's due of her land but also because she had actually conformed to Protestantism and they, and they were like and they're acknowledging the fact that that you know even though her daughter's Catholic they still had to follow the laws but they 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 were really sorry about it and so you get those sort of instances there but also just how even if Catholic landlords had always you know raised rents and that sort of thing um, they people were still generally quite loyal to their, their Catholic landlord. I mean, there's another example in the book um, when one of the sequestration agents, John Rushworth, was um, buying bulk bulks of um, Sir Philip Constable of Everingham in Yorkshire's lands in Yorkshire and in Lincolnshire. Um, he had all the, serv- all the a lot of the tenants refused to acknowledge Rushworth as the new owner. You know, Rushworth was purchasing the land to protect them for Constable, obviously for a fee. Um, a lot of the te- the tenants and landlords um, basically were, were, were refusing to acknowledge the Rushworth as the new owner or pay him the rent. They're like because they just said constables are owner, not you. And so it gives you a really interesting insight into relationships. And I suppose one other example I can give um, just to finish off my um, answer is um, another example of you know relationships with you know. Catholic landlord and tenants was um, Sir John Arundel in Cornwall in that um, people from London asked um, for witnesses to come forward to speak for and against Arundel and um, no one would speak against him despite the appeals because they said that you know John John Arundel had been, and his family had been there for decades he's a good he's a good land he's a good person and no one would speak against him so it gives you a good sense that even though there's pressure um, for for gathering evidence revolving sequestration compounding cases to speak get for or against um, the Catholic in question, people would generally stick to their guns and stay loyal. And it could, you know, also sort of explain, you know, it, you know how people behave locally and how they deal with orders from London when they don't, when um, when they're a bit suspicious in the time of suspicion as such. So I think so. It's really it's been really fascinating reading all these petitions and family papers as such to actually really get a sense of what's going on on the ground compared to what's going on legislatively as well. I, I was wondering, Alish, if you can tell us a bit about the formal process or formal procedure involved in sequestration of Catholics then, and whether you thought it was overall successful then, given given the answer you've just given about sort of the general resistance even by non-Catholics to being involved in it. So, so the formal process of, of, sec- of sequestering and compounding. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So the general process um, was, was that you a Catholic would be sequestered their property, whether it's when they're in a garrison or there's there's orders for them to be sequestered. So what happens is they get an they get an order, and it 
says what they've been sequestered for. So are they being sequestered for fighting, for being in arms against Parliament, for being a recusant, for being a papist delinquent? That's someone who's not only Catholic, but also politically disloyal because they fought for the royalist side and that sort of thing. And normally it'll say where, where it happens as well. So sometimes you'll get it in the London ones or you'll get it in the local county sequestration committees because these sequestration committees had existed before the Civil War. So you have ones in Kent and Sussex, in Cornwall, and other places and, you, and it's and it's been quite good actually seeing the paper trail between the two and how quickly they responded to things and you know copied duplicate have copied duplicates so you can see that paper trail if any have lost been lost in the over the centuries and so for a catholic to get their um, estates back they had to submit a compounding petition which was sent to the committee for compounding at goldsmiths hall in london so even if they were sequestered locally in one of the county committees everything got processed in London. So it was completely centralised. And so what they had to do was they had to say who they are, what their rank is. So a lot of my Catholics were gentry because after 1645, um, you had to have a certain amount of money to be sequestered to begin with. So it was targeting those who could afford it as such, or those who they thought they could um, really, really hit hard with it. And so they normally say who they were, what their rank is, and what they've been sequestered for. So again, was it papist delinquency, delinquency or recusancy? And then they would give like a sort of an explanation of why they should they thought they should be allowed to compound. So normally, you know, you start to see a lot of um, petitions, say Catholic petitions, especially after 1650, um, say, you know, I was in that garrison, but I was fleeing religious persecution in the countryside. And therefore, you know, I was not fighting in arms for the king, but more in safety of my life or, you know, you would get ones who would admit they had been in arms, but they had admitted fault and that they had not fought since then. And with Catholic ones, you know, it's more straightforward because they hadn't conformed at all. And then they'd sort of then give an explanation of, again, why they think they should be allowed to compound. So normally, had they sworn certain oaths to have their properties taken back, had they paid the first moiety of their fine? So the first moiety is half of the compounding fine based on the value that had been done in the committees. And then... If they had paid it, then it normally secured their ability to have the um, sequestration um, lifted, but obviously on the condition they paid the second, the, the remainder of the fine. And so that's pretty much how the petitions were set up. And, you know, I probably should just add, you know, um, on the bit about why Catholics would normally say from the 1650s onwards about why they're in the wrong place one time in garrisons. And that's um, in the early 1650s, legislation changed. So under the Republican um, parliamentary regimes, you start seeing legislation which is targeting you know, papist delinquents, so those who are still actively supporting the royalist cause, or those who had actually fought for the royalist side in the civil wars. And so they had their um, sequestration fine much higher after the 1650s than those who had just been sequestered for recency. So you start seeing a lot of Catholics who have been sequestered for delinquency starting to change their story by saying, you know, I may have been sequestered for delinquency, but I definitely didn't fight in the war. I'm, I'm a poor recusant, you know, so you get a lot of that. So it's really interesting to see how the narrative flips for a few of them during this period. And so, yeah, so that's pretty much the structure of the um, sequestration compounding processes. So and I should add as well, with the compounding petitions, you have to go to London to do it as well. So you have to go and present your case in London in person or have, you know, like a, a lawyer or counsel to be there with you as well. So, so it's quite a lengthy process, and it can be quite an expensive process as well to do that in 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 London. 
you, know, you could be waiting weeks and weeks for your case to be heard. I think that nicely segues into my next question, which is how were Catholics active in resisting sequestration? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, to, to expand, I suppose to expand more on that, really. Um, yeah, it's changing their tactics. So um, you will, so you'd have people like Sir Philip Constable of Everingham, for example, who was constantly battling in the early 1650s to, to prove that he was in, uh, because he had been sequestered because he was found in Newark um, Garrison when it fell in 1646. And so he had been originally sequestered for, for delinquency and then papers delinquency. And so in the early 1650s, he was trying to um, change that because he was about to be put in the treason bill in 1650, between 1651 and 1652, um, for still believed to be an active resident. And so by being put in the treason bill, he would have lost all his estates. And so he was trying to prove so hard that um, he was a Catholic, who, an innocent Catholic as such, because he not only sends um, handwritten petitions for it, but he also has it printed to try and circulate in Parliament as well. And so, you know, he really emphasised the fact, you know, he was quite old when the war started, so he wouldn't have been physically able to fight in the war. He and his wife had been forced to flee their home because of violence from soldiers who were roaming the countryside. And then, you know, he, then his wife had died and he fled to um, Newark. And that he was that, and he was found there when the... When the um, Garrison surrendered to the Parliamentarian Army, and so he really emphasises that emotive side as well about the about the physical violence and the fact that it was religious persecution. So he was only guilty of being a recusant, not for being a delinquent as such. And so you start to see a lot of that, and you start to see um, Catholics as well um, publishing and writing stuff as well. So I mentioned the Black Lois earlier. So that's one extreme like extremist Catholic group as such who are trying to, you know, get favour with the Conrelian regime, you know, sort of seize the moment. Because you have, again, all these different Catholic factions um, along this, um, during this period, trying to negotiate toleration or liberty of conscience with different groups. And you see this as well in the 1640s. And I know that um, Christopher Gillett at the University of Scranton is that he has done a lot of work on this in particular. Um, but one of the cases I looked at for this was um, John Austin, where he talks about, you know, this, this, you know, how Catholics were trying to actively engage and resist these changes. And um, he does this in his series of political essays called um, The Christian Moderator, which was published between 1651 and 1653. And then it gets published as a compendium under his pseudonym, William Birchley. And what's really fascinating is that he's really trying to put forward an argument of Catholics, you know, having been sort of mistreated during this period, but also how, you know, they should be allowed toleration and they should, because uh, they've shown loyalty and comparison to groups like the Episcopalians and Presbyterians from Scotland who are being given um, more rights compared to them in this period. But one of the ones that are really, really fascinating in, in the second essay of that series, because is that he re he actually talks about how Catholics are being treated at um, in the compounding committees. So he, in this one, he's actually rep um, rep referencing the Haberdashers Hall because um, you'll sometimes see Gorsons or Haberdashers Hall for where the committee for compounding proceedings took place, and he really emphasises how noisy and crowded and how horrible experience it is for Catholics to try 
and get their estates back and where some people could outbid them you know if they if they don't you know get their estates back by just putting a few extra pennies or pounds through to outbid them from their estates and so he's offering this as a way to try obviously persuade um Cromwellian regime and those who might be open-minded to giving Catholics some liberty of conscience or to treat Catholics better in the sequestration compounding process. But it, it is really, really varied. And I think there's a lot more research that can definitely be done into this. So I think, so I very really tapped into this a little bit in the book because um, the sequestration side of things is the central argument in the book and with the petitioning and relationships of Catholics and Protestants. But um, I think um, research-wise, there's so much more that we that can be done looking into this. I mean, it's something I would like to hope I can do a lot more myself in the future. But yeah, so you start to really see just different forms of ac activities with Catholics in this period who are either resisting the changes, like with trying to change their petitions, or or those who are trying to engage in some intellectual dialogue with the regime and in a sort of more softly approach to gain toleration. So Eilish, I wanted to ask you the gender question. So these Catholics who were subject to sequestration, was it mainly men or were there women as well who were subject to this? Uh, thank you. Um, the most of the cases I looked at were men, just because there seemed to be a lot more paperwork with me to be able to follow the trail. And obviously, if they were being sequestered for delinquency, it was most likely to be men who were actively fighting <laughs> against the parliamentarian army rather than women. Though, of course, women did fight in the... Um, civil war period or defending their their castles or garrisons and stuff but no i do look at it did affect women as well so i mean women were generally more punished for recency with sequestration during this period rather than as i say for delinquency and papers delinquency and so women do appear in the book and i do give quite a lot of attention to it so mainly a couple of the women i do look at are countess rivers who's what they've always one of the big famous examples of how of um, the events leading up to the outbreak of civil war, when um, her house, her houses in Essex and in Suffolk get completely destroyed by rioters who, for economic reasons, and because she was known to be a, a very rich Catholic noble, peeress in the period. But I also look at at uh, Lady Penelope Gage. I look at a few of those who you know spouses with hus you know whose husbands have been um, heavily sequestered as well um but but no i mean again there should be a lot more that needs to be done on this and you know and i would have loved to have had more female examples in the book as well and i made sure that i definitely did put women in there and and to look more into detail about their emotive experience of it as well so although you know they're they're not actually fighting for the you know for the royalist cause or anything like that you know the process is still quite long and arduous for them as well and um there's there's examples of them um when Rivers and Gage, the Gage's family as well, have a bit of a brush up when um, some when they're trying to go out of London and on a light on a license to go abroad, and their property is confiscated from them by Lon in London, and the and Parliament in particular the House of Lords are furious about how these women have been treated because it's you know it's not just their horses and things that've been taken from them, but it's also their clothing. And they seem really affronted about the fact that their clothing was confiscated from them. You know, they say, "How dare, how dare these officials take the, you know, clothing of these of these poor women?" And um, so, so it's been interesting to look at it from that perspective. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's, as I said, there should they, definitely 
could there definitely would probably be a lot more examples in there but obviously with a book and there's only so many words you can write in the book anyway of this length um but again this is like i want to do a lot more on because i want to look at sequestrations on much more broader time frame so women would be a lot would have a much more central role in how they experience sequestration across a much longer period but it's just a bit harder to gauge that as much in the civil war in interregnum periods just because they're not actively fighting as such in the war if that makes sense so my next question i wonder if we can take another step back and and think more broadly what are the broader implications of your work or indeed why do you consider it valuable yeah i mean i think one of the first things i can say about the broader implications of the book is um the fact that there's there's been so little done on catholics during this period so it's not just trying to bridge the gap it's also just trying to sort of enrich our understanding about what's going on to catholics across the entire early modern period and to see whether this little blip in history where there's war there's revolution there's you know overthrow of the monarchy and the brief spell of republicanism whether this changed or whether this is a tiny little bookmark in history and so i feel like that on some on some points i i the book is valuable in that it shows there only is a continuity in how Catholics are treated by Protestants in the communities and everything like that. But I think it's quite valuable because it really shows how even through war and and strife as such, Catholics and Protestants still maintain those relationships. Like, you know, they 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 was they all survived the war and therefore they survived the hardships of the war and isolation and having to deal with constant political and religious upheavals that came from London to their to their own parish communities and I would like to hope that by the fact I did a lot of archival research in into um into this period by looking at family papers parliamentary orders and also looking at a lot of state papers of the compounding petitions and sequestration petitions and the local and the county ones in that 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 people will be able to see there's such a wealth uh, of information out there there's such a wealth of evidence in in the sources and in the archives that we can get used to really understand this period and to really understand the perspective from Catholics. So not just looking at their day-to-day religious routines, whether they did devotional work or whether they did religious worship. It's more the, the practical day-to-day life outside of, of um, praying, what they were doing. And I think that's something that I will hope that the book does is of value to people in understanding that in because obviously without without having been a catholic they were they wouldn't have been sequestered as such but at the same time without their interactions in the day-to-day lives of what's going on in their communities and that's and in their daily lives that that wouldn't have affected how that you know without that it um would have changed and altered the relationships in in their community so I, I would like to hope in that respect that my book is valuable for historians and I'm hoping it will mean that there's much more work on this apart from myself doing it but also that more people actually want to look more into Catholics from a social and cultural and political level rather than just from a devotional level which because there's been such wonderful stuff that has been done on those bits already so it'd just be nice just to add more to really get a, a more rounded perception of um, Catholics in this period. So you mentioned archival sources. And so I wonder, could you tell us about the sources that you consulted for this research? Yeah, um, I, lo- I looked at a quite a big variety of sources very, very early on in the research. So um, 
I looked at a lot of the um, journals for the House of Commons and House of Lords for the whole entire period. So that was a lot of reading through in an eve on an evening, especially dark winter ones, going through all the legislation and and all the terms and conditions of any acts and ordinances that were passed regarding sequestration or regarding Catholics in this period. And sometimes they went on for like 40 odd pages. So it was quite, could be quite lengthy things to go through. Um, the SP, the state papers or SP23, which is could be for compounding petitions in queue, I went through um, for, with the Catholic case studies that I had already for my list. So whether it was known Catholics or ones who I suspect to be Catholics that I went through. And there's over 260 volumes in there. So um, I went, I didn't, I didn't go for all 260 I should have. I would, I'd probably still be there if I, if I did. But um, I went through all those just to look at the paper trails, so looking at the evidences, whether it's their petitions, what are the committees saying, you know, when, they, when they're not, noting down in their minutes, but also anything regarding any of their tenants who are causing disputes in the community, if, you know, again, if they're refusing to pay rent to a new land, new landlord as such, not to their former Catholic lord or lady. And I looked at SP20, which was the state papers for the sequestration committee, so that's their order books. And so I looked through all of those. And again, it's, it gives you a good idea about what's going on, especially at the beginning of how they're trying to form the new sequestration compounded committees that are fit for purpose in a war environment where they're targeting not just Catholics, but anyone who's a delinquent who's fighting for the royalist side and that sort of thing. But also it's, it's things like fam, family papers. So I went to a lot of county record offices across the country, but also um, for ones that um, when I've been away on fellowships in Dublin but and also in the, in the United States as well. And so it's given me a, a good variety of not only just seeing what it's like for the Catholic side, but also occasionally how the Protestants fared with this as well to see if there's any similarities. And, and all the structures with the... Um, of the petitions, for example, are pretty much identical. So it was always really interesting to see it from that perspective. But I also looked at, you know, what was being printed. So in the birth of the, of the you know, sort of the printing revolution as such. So I was looking at what people are saying generally about the sequestration process, you know, how how quickly were people finding out information about how to compound for estates? How quickly was that printed? And how, and how, and how did people know about it? So by looking at um, what was printed regarding articles surrender, for example, it was easy to work out with the Catholic petitions if they had read it because they would, they would often quote word for word what was in these articles, which obviously they must have had a, pa- a, a printed copy or a handwritten version of it as well. And just obviously like with the John Austin um, essays, um, by just getting a, a, a Catholic perspective of the 1650s, for example, was, was a real eye-opener just to see how this relates to also, when you compare it to how Catholics were petitioned this period, you know, does this correlate what Austin is saying to how Catholics were actually experiencing this period? So yeah, so I spent a lot of time in archives, but which is not a bad thing at all, because I do love an archive, and it was quite hard during the lockdowns to not go to any archives as, as either. But yeah, so I just tried to make sure that I had a huge variety of different sources to really get a sense of what was happening in the 1640s, 1650s for Catholics. So I think I've been able to really highlight what what is out there and what Catholics um, experience, and even filling in a few. And gaps in some for some families where there wasn't so much for others, just depending on what survived for for those particular families in that period as well. 
And my next question is perhaps slightly more personal. Uh, what has interested you in this avenue of research? What made you want to look at Catholics in the 1640s and 50s? Yeah, um, I mean, it was a very, very long time ago now. <laughs> very, very long time ago. I think it was like a decade ago now. Um, I first encountered sequestrations um, by accident, I suppose. I was doing research for my MA um, on the Pope's foreign exclusion crisis. I've always been interested in Catholic history for the early modern period because it's just always really fascinated me. And I remember just doing some secondary reading um, for, uh, in preparation for the, dis for the dissertation writing. And one, I can't remember which, which secondary source it was now because it was that long ago. But one of the sources mentioned sequestration, how you know Catholics fared better under the Cromwellian regime in the 1650s and how they were treated by the authorities and they got to and they were generally left alone better with um their property being sequestered from them and that was pretty much it it was just a general one summary paragraph about this and that was it and I thought well what sequestration what's compounded you know is you know when you have to go and get a thesaurus or a dictionary trying to actually work out what these words were so I never even heard the term sequestration before that point and so I ended up when I was still writing the dissertation, the MA dissertation, just sort of dipping in just to hear more about what sequestration and compounding was for Catholics in this period. And I thought this is actually really, really fascinating. And I thought there's got to be some stuff in it because it seems like quite a big deal. And there, and there wasn't really. It was, you know, it's been acknowledged by historians, whether Catholic historians or early modern historians who study um, other forms of, you know, forms of Protestantism or if they study politics. But um, there just hadn't really been enough. And I just thought that, that this is such a, um, you know, missed opportunity to not actually look into it and to and to really understand how Catholics lived in this period. And so it was it, it, it was just so lovely to actually really look into it. And, you know, obviously my, my, perceptive, my perspectives changed during that course of time as well. Because obviously with me looking at it from MAIs to coming out of it to, uh, you know, years later having you know done research and then write, written a book about it is that um it really get, gives you a sense of how things did and didn't change for catholics in that their relationships with protestants didn't change as such but their their ability to adapt and change constantly to to the evolving process of sexual pounding did and so it was just really interesting to see how catholics adapted and changed quickly and that Catholics, although they, they would rhetorically in some of their petitions in the 1650s would, would, would be used as victims of religious violence, and of course some of them definitely were victims of religious violence, at the same time, it gives you a real sense of how they didn't always, at the same time, not necessarily always see themselves as victims either. So, and, and it didn't affect their relationships with Protestants as well. And, you know, so it's just really, it's been really interesting for me to see it in that perspective but that's how I sort of fell into um into um looking at sexual compound it was completely by accident so if I hadn't done that MA I probably don't I don't know what I would have done otherwise so my final question for you Eilish before I let you go is what's next for you or are you working on any other projects at the moment that we can look forward to um I'm working on quite a few projects really um so the current work I'm doing at the moment, so I'm looking a lot at Catherine of Braganza at the moment. And obviously Catherine of Braganza was Charles II's uh, Catholic um, wife in, in the um, later 17th century. And again, she's sort of been underrepresented as such because normally people focus on the fact that 
She had no children. She was quite meek in comparison to her mother-in-law, Henrietta Maria. Therefore, she didn't really do anything. Whereas that's completely the contrary. So while there's been some works looking at her um, artistic and music patronage, and there's been some wonderful works done on that, um, I've been looking at how she, how it, through her there was lots of patronage going on, and she was actually more politically involved than she than people than historians have previously given credit for. So I'm actually um, writing a piece on at the moment about how about her reputation status and how she dealt with the post-Trump exclusion crisis in this period. And I've also um, been recently commissioned um, to co-edit a book on later Stuart Queens, which is going to look at uh, from 1660 to 1735. So uh, right until the death of Maria Clementina Sobieska, who is the old pretender's um, wife and queen. And to really just look at how about the religious changes and also their artistic patronages and just how they were more politically engaged and they've normally been credit given credit for. But I haven't I haven't abandoned sequestrations, I should add. Um I have been doing quite a bit of research into sequestration across the UK. So um I before the pandemic I did work a little bit of work of it in Ireland, for example, right up until the eighteenth century. And um, I was due to start one in Scotland before um, the first lockdown happened. So hopefully I'll get to actually go into that research in the future once um, once more restrictions are lifted. Um, the plan is really is to look at how sequestration affected Catholics from the Reformation up until um, the Roman Catholic Relief Act at the end of the 18th century. And to really get a perspective of how this legislation changed and how it affected Catholic relationships, but also networking. But to also look at it from a a, a uh, global perspective as well, um, because another thing I'm working on is um, how this Protestant lawyer in the early 18th century called Edward Northey helped Catholics with their sequestration and protecting their estates, not only in England, but also in Dublin and also in the Caribbean and in North America, in the English colonies as such. And so there's definitely scope on how this affected Catholics on a much global scale who were still English or British citizens as such, but were also living in territories that were part of the, the um, emerging British Empire, but which were under different legislation and different restrictions as well. And so that's the big, big project, which I'm hoping I'll get to do properly properly over the next several years because I think it will be a project that will demand several years rather than a, a couple of years to do it, the, it justice so I think it's just more depending on just trying to get the funds involved to do that and actually to do the research so it's going to require a lot of research for me to get that done but I think once it is done I get to write the hopefully the big fat book on it um, I hope it will really change how we look at Catholics across this whole period not just in Britain but also in Ireland and also in in the British Atlantic as such. So that's so that's the big plans and that's the current works I am doing on. So I'm doing lots of different things, but they're all part of that big picture as such on, on Catholicism in the early modern period. Thank you, Eilish. Um, thanks for doing the interview. And your other projects sound supremely fascinating. Um, we look forward to seeing the fruition of some of those bigger projects. You might have to come back and do another podcast interview, in fact, in the future. Well, I'd be like, I'd be delighted to if that if that does happen when I get my writings all done in the next few years. Yeah, just keep us updated on how things are going. Um, and 
just before I let you go, actually, can you remind our readers of the title of your book and where they might find a copy for themselves? Yes, um, my title is Catholics During the English Revolution, 1642-1660, Politics, Sequestration and Loyalty. And it was published by Boydell and Brewer Press. So if you go to their main website, you'll be able to see it on there. But also you can get it as well via any of the other main um, book chains as well. But um, if you want to go direct to the academic publisher, it's Boydell and Brewer Press. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com.